Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. Very special episode today, which we'll go into in a bit. My name is Matt, and I'm a science enthusiast. I love all things science. I'd like to start by saying um, I am speaking from lands traditionally owned by the Noongar people, and we have a guest on today as well who is also speaking from the same lands. And I will pass us on over to my lovely, lovely co-host, Kate. Yes. Hi, I am here once again, another episode. And as Matt just said, special, exciting episode because we have another pint of science special, just like our last episode. I'll, you know, explain that in a quick second. Um, But yes, I'm Kate. I'm a scientist. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm doing my PhD in neuroscience at the moment. And I am currently recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. This is an episode pint of science special. So, Like I said, last episode, that was another one. So if you want to go back and listen to more amazing Pint of Science stuff, we've got more of it. But in case you you weren't around for that episode, you missed it, you don't know what I'm talking about, like what is Pint of Science? Pint of Science is an international festival which has been running in Australia for the last seven years. It's a not-for-profit science festival, which kind of, it aims to bring local researchers out of the lab to speak with the public about their current science research. And so on that note, we have a local researcher, local Perth researcher, um, Choyon, who is doing his PhD in physics at the moment at the University of Western Australia. Choyon, hi. So exciting to have you on today. Thanks for coming on, Choyon. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. I'm really, really excited. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited because from what I understand, you study something called gravitational waves, which I know almost nothing about. Like physics is not my area even slightly. So I'm so excited to like go down this rabbit hole and learn. Yeah. So gravitational waves, you know, as I would like to think of them are like the symphonies of the universe, you know? Oh, that's okay. a beautiful way of putting <laughs> yeah. it. Matt, Matt's so, excited already. <laughs> <laughs> Physics and you've brought music into it too. I'm all ears. Let's go. Yeah, that, that was the right place to start. So, so before 2015, before uh, the year the gravitational waves were discovered for the first time, uh, all we had at our disposal to understand the early history and evolution of the universe is light or photons. And of course, I mean, different wavelengths of light, like infrared, radio, and x-rays, well, they shed more light on otherwise invisible astrophysical phenomena, uh, which which cannot be observed by normal visible light. However, uh, all of this is like watching a silent movie without subtitles, because, and, and gravitational waves are something that gives us that sense of sound in the universe. And why do I say that? Mm-hmm. That's because just like sound waves are basically uh, traveling disturbance in air or the medium through which the sound is traveling. And we can also think of water waves where if we disturb the surface of our lake, we get these mm-hmm. ripples which flow upwards. In a similar way, gravitational waves are basically traveling distortions in the fabric of space-time. Yeah, wow. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... Uh, how are these traveling disturbances produced? They are produced by, uh, well, actually, to be honest, anything, uh, any astrophysical system which is uh, non-spherically symmetric 
and which is accelerating can produce these ripples in space-time. However, okay. uh, the gravitational waves which can be detected by the instruments which are there on Earth right now, uh, the, so these instruments can only detect the most violent and the most crazy events uh, to happen like after the Big Bang. Right. So, for, yeah. So, for an example, the most uh, frequent gravitational wave events that we have been able to detect uh, until now has come from the collision and merger of two black holes. Mm. Oh, wow. I think I remember when that happened when the first ones were detected and how much of a colossal event it was to actually produce that. Was that in 2015, did you say, when we first yes, detected it? it was in 2015. And uh, I was a second-year bachelor student back in India during that time. And uh, in my department in physics at Presidency University in India, we had many astrophysicists. And I, I remember the mass... Uh, euphoria uh, that uh, this this detection resulted in in the department and mm. actually that was the day I decided okay this is going to be a very interesting uh, field of research and I should uh, yeah wow <laughs> you're like right in there at the right time to kind of like exactly. go into be on the cusp of like new... a new frontier of knowledge oh, a new frontier of feeling. research like, oh that's, man that's so exciting. I, I don't remember this at all. This shows how plugged into the physics <laughs> world I am. I love that, Matt, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, no, it was such a huge deal because that, that would have been like right when I was finishing up high school. So I would have been doing physics yeah. in high school at that time. And I remember coming mm -hmm. into class and the teacher being like, oh, my God, guys, this just happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. What's unbelievable is that, uh, so this was in 2015. And within this time, we have already detected more than 50 gravitational wave events. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So why did it take so long for them to detect one and now we can easily? Is it because we've finally got the tools to or is it? Yeah, so so this is uh, a very uh, interesting question. So first of all, I mentioned that these gravitational waves, they are uh, the most violent events in the universe after the Big Bang, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I said that is because if you consider the first gravitational wave event, which is uh, in 2015, the energy carried by that gravitational wave signal, it had more than 50 times the total amount of energy that is being released by everything else in the universe combined. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an enormous, no unbelievable amount of energy. And the thing is, these gravitational waves, before they reach the Earth, they travel for billions of light years. And during this journey, they lose most of their energy. And so by the time it reaches Earth, uh, it, is, it is extremely, extremely tiny. So, so these gravitational waves, they basically stretch and squeeze space. And the amount of stretching and squeezing of uh, the Earth that the gravitational wave actually, uh, when the gravitational wave impinges on Earth, whatever stretching and squeezing effect it has on Earth is the equivalent uh, of, let's say, if I measure the distance between here and Alpha Centauri, which is the nearest star to us. Mm. And if mm. I change, if I measure the variation uh, of that length by the width of a human hair. So that is the small, tiny change that uh, this the effect of the gravitational wave has when it reaches the Earth. Yeah, right. All right? Wow. Yeah. So it's so that extremely extremely tiny measurement required us to develop the world's most sensitive ruler, right? Yeah. Mm. And 
finally, in 2015, we used lasers to build that ruler. Mm-hmm. And oh, that cool. ruler is called LIGO or Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, uh-huh. which is basically uh, two tunnels of laser and they are perpendicular to each other. Mm-hmm. And what happens when a gravitational wave passes through is that one of the arms of the tunnel goes slightly uh, longer and the other arm goes slightly shorter. And this uh, and this makes the laser uh, in that uh, instrument to to go out of phase. And this uh, this effect uh, actually creates a signal which is detected as a gravitational wave detection. Awesome. Yeah. That's Precise. Really cool. Yeah, it, it had to be it, so even so this instrument these lasers which are uh, these 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 laser arms they are about 4 kilometers long <laughs> and even yeah. Yeah, okay. Such a, yeah, and, and even with such a like enormous instrument, uh, the 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 change in length in the laser arm that is produced by the gravitational wave is is one part in ten to the power uh, minus eighteen. So that's like oh, wow. uh, about ten thousand times smaller than the diameter of a proton. Yeah. Okay. Because that's, so, yeah, that's like nineteen zeros on the so end. So if that's, what we're mm-hmm. picking up is so minuscule, so tiny, so minute, how do you know that what you're reading is a gravitational wave? How easily could Mm. the data be skewed by other anomalies or factors in the universe contributing to what it is you're measuring? Absolutely. That's a very very important question. So so there is, because anything uh, around us, like terrestrial noise, like cars honking, anything can create like noise artifacts which are louder than that small uh, distortion, right? Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is to create uh, two, instru- two such instruments, two such LIGO detectors, and which are separated much uh, farther from each other and at extremely quiet locations. So let's say if there's a local noise in one of the detectors, around one of the detectors, uh, so that noise is not going to be uh, present in the other detector. And therefore, if we have a, uh, if that if that signal is detected simultaneously in both detectors at the same time, then we can uh, like be sure of the fact that okay, this is this might not be noise. This might be a real gravitational wave signal. Mm-hmm. And of course, after that, there are like lots of uh, uh, data pre-processing and data cleaning uh, steps that happen after we are able to confirm a gravitational wave uh, detection. And presumably, the m- more of these, um, sorry, was it LIGO or LIPO? LIGO, yeah. LIGO systems, there are picking up on the gravitational waves, then the more sure you can be of your data. So, so how many of these um, LIGOs are there around the world that are picking up on these gravitational waves? Yeah, so right now there are uh, three detectors which are uh, collecting data. So they're not collecting data at this moment, but uh, so the last science run or the last observing run of LIGO uh, concluded uh, prematurely uh, last year. It was supposed to go on till April, I think, but it had to uh, end a month earlier because of COVID and stuff. Mm. Uh, so, so there are three detectors uh, in online. Uh, uh, three detectors are taking data right now, which is uh, LIGO Hanford, uh, LIGO Livingston, and so these two are in US. And the third detector is in Italy. It's called Virgo. 
And uh, there's another uh, detector which um, uh, will soon start collecting data from the next science run, which is uh, mid-2022, and that's Kagura in Japan. Ah, awesome. So yeah. as more of these are coming up, I'm sure we're going to be seeing even more and more detections of gravitational waves. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so it's not just about the more number of uh, detectors which are going to come online and detect the gravitational waves, but it's also the sensitivity of the detectors. Mm. So right now the uh, detectors are sensitive enough to detect gravitational waves from merging black holes or neutron stars primarily. But there are different kinds of uh, events which produce gravitational wave events, uh, which produce gravitational wave signals. And to detect them require much more sensitive instruments than what we currently have. So for example, um, there can be uh, there, there are plans to develop a space-based detector which are going to orbit the sun and they're going to be uh, separated by millions of uh, kilometers. So the arms of that instrument are going to be separated by millions of kilometers and wow. they are going to be extremely, extremely precise. They can detect gravitational waves from uh, from like or, orbiting or rotating white dwarf or merging white dwarfs oh, wow. signals. Yeah, signals which have frequency which are much, much below the threshold that we can mm. detect right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And especially since, am I right in saying that before 2015, because that was the first time we'd actually recorded a gravitational wave, it was all just um, speculation, well, not speculation, but, you know, kind of a theory up until that point, and it hadn't been proven yet by any data, but was it was it Einstein who, who first speculated that gravitational waves could be a thing, but then it hadn't been proved until that point? Yeah, absolutely right. So Einstein, uh, in his general theory of Relativity, which uh, he published in the year 1916, he he basically changed the entire landscape of physics. He uh, he, he so uh, until that point, we knew of gravity as a force, right? Which we are taught in high school that gravity is basically the force between two objects, uh, and that force depends on the mass and the separation square of the separation between the objects. Mm -hmm. But Einstein completely changed the picture. He uh, he 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 proposed that basically gravity is the effect of the space-time curvature, and that curvature is produced by masses, very heavy masses, and this curved space-time. So there's a quote by the physicist John Wheeler who mentioned that uh, matter tells space-time how to curve, and space-time tells matter how to move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, all the planets that is orbiting the Earth, they are actually uh, traveling in straight lines around the curved space-time. Yes. Right? So gravity is nothing but a, it's an effect of the curved geometry around which, uh, uh, which is which is being produced by very heavy masses. It's a totally different way to look at how the universe functions and operates. That's completely mind-blowing to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's so this this prediction has uh, all the predictions of general theory of relativity by Einstein has been proved until date. So this is the one theory uh, that has uh, not been invalidated by any experiments uh, or any observations so far. And it has all the tests of general general theory of relativity uh, has has basically approved Einstein's predictions. Wow. Yeah, and so so basically the theory of gravitational waves is 
it, 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 so the general theory of relativity leads up to the prediction of gravitational waves because when you have masses bending space-time and creating a curved space-time around itself, when you have two such heavy objects which are, you know, sort of spiraling towards each other, it can create ripples and we can uh, we, we can actually solve the wave equations by from general theory of relativity and predict what these gravitational waves will look like. So yeah, it was Einstein's. It was Einstein's prediction, and because we never had the sort of uh, the, the the precise instruments or these very very precise techniques to detect these gravitational waves, it took us hundred years from uh, Einstein's uh, first proposition of the general theory of relativity to actually getting to the point where we could start detecting gravitational waves. That's so wild to my brain that like <laughs> Einstein was able to like yeah figure this out such a long time you know, before we were almost a hundred years ago and now it's just well yeah because you're you're picking up on the changes in the the fabric of space itself you know like a wave is just like a ripple moving through a medium and the medium you're looking at is space time itself. You know, how do you measure that a hundred years ago? Mm. How do you measure but the fact that you can time? figure out that they exist a hundred years ago, but you can speculate it and you can theorize it and be pretty much bang on the money. That's, mm. that's impressive. Yeah. Does it, did the waves follow like a similar mathematical, do, are they similar mathematically to other waves? Like, you know, a ripple of water or, like, is that how it was able to be sort of? Well, uh, there's one difference between uh, the waves, the, the other, the normal uh, sound waves or water waves and the gravitational waves. And that has to do uh, with uh, the, it's something called polarization. So the effect that the gravitational wave has on matter is it uh, stretches and squeezes space in a certain way. And the direction uh, that the stretching and squeezing will happen uh, is basically determined by the polarization of the gravitational wave, and that is different uh, uh, for uh, like for 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 different for electromagnetic waves. For like let's say it can be electric fields and magnetic fields, they are polarized in a certain direction, but gravitational mm -hmm. waves uh, are polarized in a different direction, and okay. it will have a different uh, sort of effect. Uh, on uh, space-time rather than other other kinds of signals, mm -hmm. but yeah, but essentially we have we can uh, derive a, a wave equation from from the first principles of Einstein's general relativity. Yeah, yeah. Wow. because of the um, massive events that need to happen for us to be able to pick up on these gravitational waves on Earth. You know, something like two black holes colliding or a neutron star forming. Can there be any other um, things that reach us before the gravitational waves do so we know to point the instruments in that direction? Because I assume if, you know, um, you know, two neutron stars collide, there's going to be a massive burst of radiation and that as well. And there could be a high chance that that will... Well, which would hit Earth first, like the, the flash of gamma rays or the, the ripple of space-time itself? Absolutely. So you uh, brought a very uh, important point uh, because uh, that's exactly what my uh, particular research is focused oh, on. Nailed oh, it, Matt. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I promise so, you it wasn't planned. So, so, so my research is focused on uh, using artificial intelligence, which is you know, the technology behind self-driving cars and CD, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
to try and detect the direction in the sky the gravitational wave signal is coming from. And the reason it is important to do that is because these neutron star mergers, they will uh, be uh, accompanied by this energetic burst of radiation called short gamma ray bursts, which happen about one or two seconds after uh, after the merger, right? Yeah. And now the problem is what we want is basically we want to detect uh, the two events, the electromagnetic event uh, and the gravitation wave event simultaneously, mm-hmm. because that would give us more information about the composition of the neutron stars. Mm-hmm. And the problem uh, is that the current infrastructure of LIGO and Virgo does not allow us to uh, localize a gravitational wave signal uh, in less than eight seconds. However, the short gamma ray bursts they happen about one or two seconds after the merger. Therefore, in order to be able to observe the gravitational waves and these electromagnetic counterparts of gravitational waves together, we need to localize the gravitational wave events in less than one second. Otherwise, we are going to miss these events. That is not a lot of time to point up your equipment. Yeah. We need to tell our telescopes exactly where to look at the precise location. Otherwise, we are going to miss these events. Mm. And this is where machine learning can play an important role because once a machine learning model is sufficiently well-trained to predict uh, a certain property of the black holes or the neutron stars, uh, it, it can basically generate a prediction in in less than one second. It can do it in a few milliseconds. Oh, and therefore, yeah. I am trying to use some machine learning models to try and uh, localize the sky directions of gravitational waves in less than one second so that we can have like coincident detections of gravitational waves and short gamma reverse. So you get maximum data in the amount of time. Yes, exactly. And how have you found that to be going so far? Yeah, so uh, I have uh, pub- I had published a, a paper la- uh, in 2019, which was which was a method paper uh, and it was based on uh, some preliminary tests that I have done on some very simple models. Mm-hmm. And using that, uh, uh, we found that we can uh, get accurate sky directions in in a few milliseconds. So, so that's extremely encouraging, mm. but I have only tested that for black holes until now. Uh, for neutron stars, it's a much bigger challenge because the waveform of the of these uh, gravitational waves produced by neutron stars are much longer and they are uh, much weaker than black holes. And therefore, to actually uh, get the sufficient amount of information from those uh, weak signals and train uh, neural network to actually predict something is, uh, is is a very difficult task and it has not been achieved using machine learning yet. Uh, but this is something that I aim to do as part of my PhD research. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. And so machine only machine learning is only going to get more advanced and it's getting exponentially more advanced, I feel. So that's, that's going to be awesome. That's going to be awesome when that's finally able to do that. And then if anything has a chance of picking up on the really, really tiny stuff, like you were saying before, white dwarves, I mean, it would have to be that, right? Uh, well, I think for uh, picking up on those really, really tiny wiggles of space-time, we first of all need uh, detectors which are uh, which have completely a different uh, kind of uh, works on completely different principles, like the the ground-based detectors which are uh, 
which are being operating from Earth and which can contaminate, which can get contaminated by terrestrial noise, probably will never be able to pick up the, those signals uh, because of the all the kinds of noise that can that can contaminate the signals. But the space-based detectors uh, probably are uh, what we should be looking for. And then, of course, if we use uh, machine learning models uh, from the data that we get from the space-based detectors, then definitely that is something that uh, we can observe. Yeah, that is incredibly oh, cool. Awesome. I have to say, though, Matt, I'm very impressed with your knowledge of uh, <laughs> gravitational waves. I'm honestly surprised as well. I knew more than I thought I did. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's getting so popular these days. I mean, uh, I mean, last year when we published the... Uh, the catalog of events that was detected in the third observing run. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of press release and uh, it's getting really, really popular. I mean, mm. especially after 2015, uh, there has been a lot of interest in this area and uh, more young researchers are uh, getting interested in this field and doing research in this mm. field, which is extremely encouraging thing. I think the, like you know, the fact that I know as much as I do about gravitational waves is kind of, you know, a testament to um, mm, good psychom, good really. good psychom going on, Like, yeah. in, in the psychom circles mm. that I follow of, like, you know, Kyle Hill, um, V-Source, Smarter Every Day, stuff like that. A lot of mm. them very, like, physics-based sci science communicators. Like, when, when that stuff mm. was going on, they were the first to just jump on it and explain yeah. it as best they could and, yeah. like... Clearly, some I've managed to retain some of that knowledge. So that's there we go. You know, that's wonderful yeah. and encouraging for science communication as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Choyon, what would be you know? So it's awesome that you know you're able to detect these events now, and you know, like you were saying, it's the sound quality to understanding the universe around you. But what would be kind of the ultimate goal in your mind of what this research means for us? So like, as we're able to detect more and more of these, like what, what does that tell us? Like what, you know, what's the ultimate thing that you're trying to find out by measuring these gravitational waves? So uh, since this, uh, this gravitational wave is, uh, so the, the phrase that is often associated with gravitational wave is a new messenger, right? Because mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, uh, before 2015, all we used was light to understand uh, basically how the universe works and stuff. Mm -hmm. But since gravitational waves are like the new messenger, we we are not even sure of what we may be able to discover using these mm. gravitational waves. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah, we don't know <laughs> what we don't know. Uh, however, I mean, there are some speculations because if we look at the very early universe, the light in universe only originated about 100,000 years after the Big Bang. Uh -huh. And before that, there was uh, no light because uh, sort of photons were in, a, in, a real, in, in one hot soup. They were coupled together with all the highly energetic particles. And uh, basically, the light could not really escape from that hot soup. And we did not have, the, we did not have any light from... Uh, a time period before 100,000 years after the Big Bang. There you go. Mm. So, Didn't know that one. Yeah. So whatever uh, happened uh, during those dark ages uh, is Literal basically... dark ages, yeah, wow. Yeah, it's called dark ages. 
and we have no information about uh, about that uh, period of history of our yeah. universe. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that either. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. But but we always had gravity, right? And we yeah. since after Big Bang, large uh, clumps of uh, you know uh, masses could uh, you know condense and and create gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. So, so these gravitational waves, which may have been produced about one or two seconds after uh, the universe first formed, let's say, mm-hmm. if we are able to detect those signatures of those gravitational waves, these are called primordial gravitational waves, yeah. then th- that would probably might change the our idea about the early universe, the early yeah. history of the universe. Oh, that would yeah. be cool. Yeah. Oh, gosh, because I guess, yeah, yeah we would... If we if we know nothing, then any bit of information is gonna exactly. Uh, and so, how would you detect, you know, signatures from gravitational waves from that long ago? Well, uh, so one of the speculations is, uh, let's say, a primordial black hole, which which is uh, con- considered to be a black hole that is formed at the very early stages of the universe. Yeah. So and and these black holes, uh, there are different models uh, for explaining the kind of masses uh, these black holes might have. Mm-hmm. And let's say if we are able to somehow detect gravitational waves from uh, from from a black hole which is much smaller than the mass of our sun, then some theories predict that these are uh, like smoking gun signatures of uh, of gravitational waves from primordial yeah, black holes. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, it's, a, it's still a long, we still have a long way to go before we are uh, able to detect mm. these uh, gravitational waves. But even with the current instruments that we have, we it, it has already started to change our understanding of different astrophysical phenomena. Yeah. For example, uh, in our last observing run, there was a detection of a gravitational wave event uh, from merger of two black holes of masses 66 solar mass and 85 solar mass and these what's that were, in scale of like i have no concept of what that means is so that just like, like the mass of the sun times the mass times? of our sun and yeah okay, right wow okay so quite quite massive then exactly and we had uh, prior to that we had never detected gravitational waves from or we had never uh, even uh, detected any black holes of that heavy masses yeah, right. So there's, wow. there's something called an intermediate mass gap. So we are uh, able, so there are, there's a catalog of black holes, which are less than 66 uh, times the mass of the sun. Mm-hmm. And there's, and then there's like supermassive black holes, which are about 1000 to 10, 10 million or a billion times <laughs> the mass of the sun. <laughs> yeah, oh, gosh. All right. All right. <laughs> but there was never, there has never been, before uh, last year, there was never a detection of a black hole of mass about 100 to 10,000 times mass of the sun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that mass gap, so so those two uh, black holes, the 66 solar mass and the 85 solar mass black hole, they merged to form a black hole of 142 solar mass. Yeah, and, wow. So this was the first instance of uh, a discovery of a black hole with an intermediate solar mass, and mm-hmm. and it was it was previously thought that the from stellar evolution models it was predicted that uh, just uh, the core collapse of stars cannot form black holes of masses of six, sixty-six solar mass or something like that. So this discovery is basically what it's telling us is that we need to revise our models of uh, stellar evolution because mm-hmm. certainly these kinds of very heavy mass black holes do exist 
or we can we need to come up with theories about how black mm. holes form from merged of smaller black holes into a larger ones and then it's called hierarchical merger so you have smaller black holes merging into larger and then the larger ones merge with other larger black holes to form yeah. yet yeah. bigger so yeah all of this was unknown to us prior to that detection so yeah it's it's already changing the landscape of uh of astronomy i guess yeah and that was all due to detecting those gravitational waves yeah yeah i have a question yeah. what is the speed of gravity so if speed of light, right, has its constant, it has its cap where it, it can't go any faster than that. So we know we can, we can measure distance in light years because of how long it'll take something traveling mm-hmm. at the speed of light to get there. Um, space um, and space expanding isn't bound by the speed of light because it's yep. not about something traveling through space, it's space traveling itself. So does that then also apply to the speed of a gravitational wave going through uh, or, or manipulating the medium of space itself, does that mean that could go faster than the speed of light? And then could we then potentially detect things or send messages using gravitational waves at a faster than light speed? Uh, that, that's a very interesting oh, question. Wow. So yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, uh, the speed of light, uh, so the, the expansion of the universe is not bound by the speed of light. However, gravitational waves uh, uh, need to uh, cannot travel faster than the speed of light. Okay. But yeah, but space itself, because the expanding uh, space itself can travel faster than the speed of light. So, how come the the waves are bound by the speed of light? Uh, I need to think of this a bit because yeah, Matt, you're asking mm, spicy questions there. <laughs> Going hard. Um, no, I don't think I have a very good answer right now. That's okay. But, yeah. That's the beauty of science. I'd, I'd rather you not know, you know, than yeah. make something up. Yeah, that's well, fine. I mean, I'm this stuff is, if it's so new, yeah. like gravitational waves being detected and being confirmed to exist for the first time only, what, like six years ago, like... There's yeah. probably yeah. so much that just... That's it. My mind's just jumping straight to the whole, you know, how can we utilize this for the ultimate sci-fi <laughs> purposes of, you know, intergalactic messaging faster than the speed of light. Let's warp it itself, you know, but... <laughs> it's an interesting idea of sending messages with gravitational waves, though. Yeah. Even I, if it's not fast. It would probably be very inefficient given how much the energy has to, like... um how much the enemy, uh, uh, pardon me, the energy, what's the word? Um, not distributes, like disperses over mm-hmm. the course of time. Like it takes two black holes colliding for us to pick up a fraction of mm. the thing. So like if you wanted to send a message across the cosmos, you, you would, would need, need to... some spare black holes to <laughs> collide. It, it would um... probably be a lot easier just to send out a photon because um, that'll <laughs> just keep going. Until... Yeah, but, so the difference is in the photons, they lose energy much faster than gravitational waves do. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, and it has like, we, we uh, understand redshift. So the fo- the the wavelengths of the photons, they will elongate and they will lose energy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but the gr- gravitational waves, they are, uh, and then there are like other other kind of medium which is interacting with the photons and so the energy disperses when the when the light waves travel through those mediums as mm. well but the gravitational wave is not getting as dispersed as uh, as the light waves because it's it's just it's waves 
that's that are traveling through space and everything is getting affected by it. So do you think it could be a viable source for future intergalactic messaging? Probably. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I love all the, yeah, the science fiction-esque speculations that come out of, is it really bad that every time I learn anything, you know, astrophysics related, my brain just goes into sci-fi, like, this isn't applicable to real life, but imagine... I think that's where, uh, you know, most of our exposure to concepts from physics comes from, you know, outside of true. a science classroom is, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, mm, any kind of actually, science fiction. Yeah. Like, I've watched that's a lot the majority more Star Wars more recently that, than I've yeah. sat in a physics room. Whereas, you know, <laughs> things like biology and chemistry shows up less in science fiction, I feel, and is more of like a scientific justification in a non-scientific film, you know? Mm. It's like the scientific yeah. expert will be talking about biology or will be talking about chemistry, and then our exposure to physics is through a TARDIS flying through wibbly-wobbly, <laughs> yeah. timey-wimey space goo. Um, That's true. And there's so much, uh, that, like, you, you mentioned about science communicators. I think the amount of physics content that's available out there in these, uh, uh, in, in, in YouTube and other kind of uh, platforms where, which explains things like very, uh, like complicated concepts in a very interesting way. Mm. Uh, the amount of content that is available for astrophysics and other kind of stuff, it's, it's amazing. And mm. it's very, uh, it's, it's very natural, I think, for human beings to marvel at space and what's out there and everything. And also, it certainly helps to have these platforms and uh, these science communicators who do an excellent job of uh, basically making this stuff accessible mm. to the common public. Yeah, which is something that, you know, anyone who's ever listened to this show before would know that I'm incredibly passionate about. And I mean, <laughs> that's why we have this show. That's why we started it is because I think it's so important to you know, do stuff like, like Pine of Science is doing exactly. and, and bring the accessible science. Them. Yeah, exactly. To anyone that wants to learn about it, like anyone at all, doesn't matter if you haven't learned any science formally since high school, doesn't matter if you dropped out of high school, like you don't need any, you know, we can still bring this stuff mm. to a to level you. that you can, you know, on, you don't have to be an expert in it by any mm. means, but it's nice to have an idea of what people are talking about. Before we shuffle on to our listener question, because we do have a listener question again this week. Um, Troyon, thank you so much. Was there anything else that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet to do with your research or gravitational waves or just, you know, anything in general that you wanted to bring up before we moved on? Uh, yeah, I think I just, uh, I would like to mention just the field of uh, machine learning and AI, the the rapidity with which it has developed over the last few years. I mean, before, I mean, until my master's uh, in physics, I had no clue about machine learning or anything related to AI. It was only after I came here in Perth for a research project that I first started to do some machine learning. And then uh, slowly as I got into this field, I realized uh, how uh, everything, like every uh, Every aspect of research has, uh, within astrophysics or within some other field, has some or the other application of machine learning and AI, and it's becoming so popular these days. And mm -hmm. one of the lovely things about uh, about machine learning is that there are tools which anybody can use these days. Anybody with with computer uh, with basic programming skills will be able to use these tools. Of oh, course, yeah. To, yeah, of course. I mean, to to understand. Uh, 
it properly to understand what the models are basically learning and to do accurate uh, or to do good statistics with machine learning models is uh, requires knowledge of data science and statistics and mathematics as well but uh, at a very basic level the kind of uh, advancement that ai and tools uh, ai tools are having the impact that it is having on our daily lives i'm very sure that very soon all of us like, uh, will start using uh, ai uh, you know in everyday life is this something we should be concerned about are the robots going to take over the world i mean i'm sure that's the question on everyone's <laughs> mind you know the singularity yeah. terminator skynet all that good stuff again sci-fi playing into the public consciousness yeah yeah well well right now i think the uh, the ai or machine learning whatever uh, they're very good at doing some particular tasks like let's say uh, the there is a there, there is a neural network model which uh, beats Gary Kasparov at chess, but mm-hmm. you cannot rely on that neural network to do other tasks like classify between the picture of a cat and a dog, which human beings can mm. do very very easily. Mm. So the the real aim is to achieve artificial general intelligence, which is an AI that can do a lot of different stuff, uh, not just bound by a few few particular tasks mm-hmm. and to achieve that is uh, is extremely difficult but uh, i think i think a few years ago there was a survey amongst uh, many experts in ai and uh, in this kind of field and they came up with the with a, with a, with an estimate i think that's about 2062 mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, it's a wide wide there was a wide variance in that uh, estimation though but I think the median of that spread of the distribution of when artificial general intelligence would be achieved was the year 2062. So I guess we can all keep our jobs before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got that long to get out of hospo, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's it. No, that's super, super interesting stuff. I just, I'm very, I, I just love learning about stuff that I have no idea about going into. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, uh, I'm glad. At the end, I'll give you a chance to plug any social media you have or places people can find you. Um, But before we get to that, we have a listener question. If you don't listen to this show regularly, haven't listened before. Uh, Every episode, we tackle a listener question that has been sent into us. We have an email address, curiosityrat at gmail.com. If you have a listener question you want me to answer for you one episode, you can shoot it through to that email address. Uh, And so today we have a question that Artie sent in. uh, And he said, how exactly does milk reduce spiciness? And are there other alternatives? Mm. So... I feel like, Matt, do you remember, because I don't, but I feel like we've had a listener question on something to do with spice before, because I feel like as I was researching this, I was like, I've mm. talked about this before on the podcast. I'm not sure. I, I, I um, can't, look, I can't remember. <laughs> I'll be totally honest. I, I think I know the answer to this question anyway, just because I've, I've read about it previously. Okay. Um, is it to do with uh-huh. the fact that spiciness is capsaicin oil and because it's an oil uh-huh. if you want to get rid of it you need something that either binds to the oil or breaks down the oil to get uh-huh. rid of it so detergent would probably work great so our episode <laughs> on soap but ill that's gross having something like Wash milk it's soap. good is because it has fats it's got a good fat content so it binds mm-hmm. to the fats of the capsaicin allowing you to wash them down i've also mm-hmm. heard 
like lemons work or limes work, but I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. But acidity, alkalineness, mm, that one. But yeah. that's but, but that's why milk works and true. water doesn't, because obviously water and oils don't mm-hmm. they don't play nice with each other. So it just yeah. Am I am I you right? Am I right? Am I, I right? love that you said that because that is what we thought up until up uh, until no. 2019. No. Mm. <laughs> so Thank you for starting me off. So, like, you know, Damn quick it. primer for anyone who doesn't know anything about spiciness. You were completely correct that essentially what causes that spicy, hot, burny feeling is capsaicin, which is an it's an oil essentially. It's well, it's not an oil, but it's a non-polar, therefore hydrophobic molecule, which much like oil. Um, it, it means it doesn't dissolve in water. Mm. And so capsaicin, it binds to something called TRIP-V1 receptors, which are receptors on pain-sensing cells. So when they get activated, these pain cells go, ah, shit, that hurts, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, the reason it feels quote-unquote hot is because these TRIP-V1 receptors are the same receptors that are triggered by hot temperatures. So anything above 43 degrees Celsius, mm. which is 109 degrees Fahrenheit, for those of you incorrect listeners out there. Um, <laughs> hot. <laughs> yeah, so when it's hot, it, it also stimulates these same TRIP-V1 receptors. So it, it's all an illusion. So your mm. brain is like, oh, shit, I'm being burnt. I need to stop. Um, and it's you're not actually being burnt, but we're tricking you into thinking you are and whatever. So, yeah, the OG theory was that because capsaicin is nonpolar, uh, but milk is really fatty, so the high, you know, fat concentration in milk might actually be able to dissolve these capsaicin molecules and get them away from the TRIP-V1 receptor, which makes sense because things like avocado, like guacamole you have with spicy food for mm. a reason. Um, also, apparently peanut butter is one that you can do, whack it in your mouth, and that'll oh, yeah. help a little bit because it's very fatty. fatty. Um all of that made wonderful sense. And then this study came out in 2019 where what they did is they got participants to, they made up this like tomato juice and chili essentially in a cup, made okay. them drink it. Delicious. Yum. Um, and they followed it with, there were seven different drinks. So there was seltzer, water, cola, non-alcoholic beer, I'll get to that in a sec, Kool-Aid, skim milk, and whole milk. Do they have alcoholic and beer as well? Or just they the didn't have alcohol. No, no, okay. because, well, okay, I'll explain now. Alcohol, essentially alcohol is um, a double-edged sword because Often. when it's at a really high concentration, so like a vodka or something, mm. the ethanol can dissolve the capsaicin and pull it away from the receptor, but Alcohol at that high concentration burns, right? You want to know why it burns? Because it also binds to a TRIP-V1 receptor and acts Ah. as an irritant and creates a burn. So at something like, if you're drinking something like beer, it can actually make it worse. Like you'll feel more spicy because you're irritating those same receptors. Um, And if you're high enough to dissolve the capsaicin, then you just get the alcohol burn instead. So I guess like, what do you prefer? I don't know. (laughs) Like you choose your flavor of burn. Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, so this study in 2019, those were the the drinks that they did. Um, and they the thing that threw the spanner in the works of the fat theory is that skim milk and whole milk came out on top, but were the same. Ah. Both like skim milk. One of those is not like just the others. As well as whole milk at making spice taste less spicy. Well, okay. So shit, right? Yeah. Like there goes that theory because skim milk is milk without the fat. Funny that. Um, 
you know, things like guac and peanut butter, like there is some evidence that fat can still help in other things, but we don't really know. We don't really know. Like mm. this is another one of those listener questions where once again, we don't really know. Um, the theory, the next kind of theory was like, well, okay, if it's not the fat, is it maybe the sugars um, in the milk? Because mm. there is this well-known effect that like activating sweet receptors can lessen bitter taste and also maybe burn that comes with the bitter taste in spicy things. There's something called taste mixture suppression, which is this effect where if you combine a bit of bitterness and a bit of sweetness and you taste them both at the same time, both the bitterness and sweetness decreases. Like ah, it's this, this effect in... Yeah, pretty much. Um, but with flavours or with taste, different taste types. Yeah. And so capsaicin can also bind to bitter receptors as well as the trip V1 receptors. So maybe that's why sugar... And because in the in the study, the Kool-Aid was the next one below the milk in terms oh, of... Basically um, like, cup of and sugar. It, so it did help. It did help, but not as much. But like it has more sugar than milk. So if it was just the sugar, then the Kool-Aid would have come out on top. Mm. And it didn't. So... Uh, which kind of leaves us with maybe it was the proteins um, because milk has protein in it, which like Kool-Aid and cola, like they don't have protein in them. Um, so milk has two proteins mainly, like whey and uh, casein. Mm -hmm. So I read somewhere that like plant-based protein shakes don't work as well. So maybe it's something specific about these proteins that are in like cow's milk, the whey or the casein. Um so then we need to see if a goat milk does the same thing or like Yeah, like don't milk. know. Um yeah. it's pretty much the evidence is really dicey and inconclusive at the moment in terms of like whether it's the protein. Most likely it's a combination of all yeah. those things. Like milk just has, you know, the right mixture of sugar, which we know helps. Uh, the protein, which possibly helps, um, and the fat, which we know helps in some cases. And so because it has this perfect combination, it just works really well. Um and the other thing is for it to be cold. Like that, that is, so in terms of the other part of Artie's question was, are there other alternatives? I mean, like I've already said, fatty things, sugary things, um, but cold things, eat ice cream. Like mm. that's got your milky, all the effects of the milk, but it's also freezing. Well, all because, right, I guess I'll do it for science. Yeah, right. Um, any Essentially any beverage or thing that you eat that's, colder than your body temperature is going to give you some immediate relief because the way capsaicin works, like, you know, it's, it's this illusion that tricks your body into thinking you're being burned, but it actually makes your mouth feel about 10 degrees Celsius hotter than it actually is. So when you eat it, your body temperature actually gets like warm enough to make you feel like you're being burned. Like there's no actual burn damage yeah. happening, but your brain is like reacting as though you are being burned. So anything that you put in your mouth that is cooler than your body temperature is going to, like, yeah, so give you some relief. So even ice water is better than nothing. Yeah. Okay. But, um, well, the thing about water is that because water, d like, doesn't react with the non-polar molecules at all, like, water is very polar, it, there's some evidence that the water might actually spread the capsaicin around your mouth more, and therefore it'll react with, like, more receptors and actually make things worse right. potentially so what about do you reckon ph levels would play any account into it yeah that was something that i also that the evidence is you know a bit dicey but i did read that yeah lemons um to there's there's some acidity i've heard lemons work as well 
Yeah, because it counteracts like the alkaline and the acidity come together. So that to would lead me to become... assume that like capsaicin is an alkaline something, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So capsaicin is very alkaline. Um, and so the citric acid in your lemon juice might Shot of apple counteract cider vinegar. Let's that. Go. But also that was didn't seem to be as effective as... Well, look, from my extensive research from watching lots of episodes of Hot Ones, it seems (laughs) that the limes give them the best relief. So I don't know. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Well, yeah, that would be why. It would be because of the pH Mm. and neutralizing the pH. Um, But so what I'm hearing is squeeze a lemon into a glass of milk and you should have the perfect... Mm. Well, I mean, lime milkshakes are a thing. (laughs) They are. They are. So surely a lime milkshake, lime ice cream, like that, that's your win. Because then you get the temperature aspect. Mm. You get all the things that come with the milky aspect and you get the like citrus. Except I don't know how much citric acid is actually in those lime flavored um, dairy products. Because (laughs) like, I feel like it's, it's, it's citrus minus the acid because Mm. acid plus dairy equals cheese. Um, and you don't necessarily want your milk turning okay. into cheese. So, okay. So, you know, you know how when you do a tequila shot, you, you do the lick the <laughs> and then the thing. Yeah. So replace the salt with sugar granules. So you lick sugar granules, you do the, uh, shot of milk and then you squeeze your lime juice. Maybe there's juice something about having something mouth. very acidic that stops your, um, your, what, what's the receptor that makes you think you're burning? What's, what's your trip V1? Your trip V1. Maybe there's something in lemons that stops your trip V1, which is why you do your lemon before a tequila shot. Because, like you said, alcohol gives you that that burn, right? So maybe having the lemon before the tequila shot stops you. You do it from after, feeling, don't you? Oh, f- you don't, finish with the lemon. I don't drink tequila. That shit's gross, man. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just speculating. yeah. It's the salt first, and then you do the shot, and then you finish with the. But yeah, it's to neutralize the burn of the tequila. Um, so yeah, that would make sense, right? Because the burn of the tequila is going to be through those same receptors. So maybe part of the acid, uh, part of the acid helping isn't just because it neutralizes the alkaline Mm, nature of the capsaicin. Maybe it actually Mm. also stops your trip V1 receptor. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't come across that in any of the reading that I did, but now I want to go and like look it up specifically. (laughs) If I find any interesting papers on it, I'll chuck those in the description along with the references I actually did read. Um, that I read before recording. I'll if, I'll read the paper and then mm. link it. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, that's essentially, that's my answer to the question. How exactly does milk work? <laughs> no, no. Um, but yes. You got can fire. Yeah, it's a, it's, it was a good question though. I mm. had a lot of fun. Uh, I thought I was that. really worried that when I was saying what I thought the answer was, they'd be like, oh no, I'm spoiling it. And now the listener <laughs> question will be done in one minute. <laughs> nah, if you, if you'd been, Nah, nah, I wasn't going to let that happen. Um, I just, I let you go so I could embarrass you. No, you did well. It was, like I said, that paper came out in 2019 and up until that point, that is exactly what we thought because it Mm. makes perfect sense in terms of the... Conceptually, it's very sound. It's very digestible. It is. Um, And up until we, yeah, found that skim milk worked just as well, we were like, oh, okay, that that checks kind of like the gravitational waves thing except we proved it wrong not right Ah. um (laughs) nice way to bring it back around yeah no smooth wasn't it thank you um even smoother now i've brought attention to it i know you (laughs) i do these things and you ruin them for me no i'm kidding i'm kidding um but i will 
bring it back to our gravitational waves to our guest, Tryon. Thank you so much for joining us this episode and, you know, as part of the Pine of Science Festival. Festival? Festival. Festival. Um, I can say words. <laughs> Thank you so much on. for inviting me. Yeah. Had a great time. Tryon, was there um, any um, social media or anything of yourself that you would like to plug if people wanted to find you or listen to more of what you have to say? Um, where could they find you? Uh, I'm available on Facebook. Fantastic. So we'll have a link in the description um, for that if anyone wants to reach out to you. Mm. Um, and Pint of Science, if you want to follow them on Twitter, you can find at Pint of Science AU, which we will link in the description, or you can check out the hashtag, hashtag PintAU21 to see all of the other amazing events there. You know, there are several other podcasts that have been hosting researchers um, over the course of the last month. There have been several online events that I'm sure you can jump on and have a look, videos. You know, COVID did some bad things, but one one perk of the COVID world we live in is that all this stuff is now online for the moment. So you can go in your spare time, whenever it's convenient for you, you can search up this stuff and get some awesome science. Um, you know, brought straight to you at home. Isn't that fantastic? Uh, and if you want, as always, you can find us on social media. Give us a follow at Curiosity Rat. We are on Instagram and Twitter and Curiosity Killed the Rat on Facebook. All of the links will be in the description. And once again, email address if you have listener questions for future episodes, curiosityrat at gmail.com. Have I forgotten anything, Matt? We have a Patreon now. Oh, we do. I have forgotten something very important. We now have a Patreon. So if you love what we do, we do it for free. Takes a lot of time, energy, effort on our part. So if you just completely optional, no pressure whatsoever, want to chuck a couple bucks our way a month, as little as a dollar, um, you can find us patreon.com slash curiosity rat that's and right and here's you can the thing like, like that i'm pretty sure it like does a one dollar a month thing right so even if you do that and then cancel it off the first mm. month that's that's fine that's fine that's a dollar more than we had exactly. that goes towards paying off our you know google drive subscription etc i'm gonna use that uh, <laughs> dollar to buy lemons and limes to test out these various spice theories yeah fund our science uh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing and with that guys we are done with Pint of Science episodes now, so it'll be back to our regularly scheduled vibe as of next fortnight. We will catch you then. Thanks again, Shoyon. Thank you. See all of you guys later. Kill curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. <laughs>